0: New season out on Spotify soon. U.S. Marine Glenn McDole was buried in a pit of garbage. He prayed that the Japanese guards couldn't hear him breathe. After hours of lying silent and motionless in the refuse, the sound of the patrolling guards quieted. At last, he decided that it was time to make his move.
1: McDole carefully began to dig himself out. He clawed through the layer of trash above him, creating a peephole about the size of his head so he could see if the coast was clear.
0: He pushed aside the last bit of trash to see a Japanese soldier staring right at him. The barrel of the soldier's rifle was pointed directly at his head. McDole had chosen exactly the wrong moment to look out.
1: He was out of options. He had nowhere to run and no way to fight. And so McDole did the only thing he could. He closed his eyes and prayed.
0: A moment passed, then another. McDole wasn't hit by a bullet. He wasn't being lit on fire or pulled out of the garbage pile. He opened his eyes. The Japanese soldier was gone. He had been drawn away by gunshots from elsewhere on the beach. McDole had been spared by pure chance.
1: After a few moments passed and the gunfire ceased, McDole dared to push his head out of the trash pile. There were no guards in sight. He pulled himself to his feet, struggling to steady his sore and burned body. He looked out towards the beach, the only route away from the prison camp which was still littered with the bodies of his friends. He took a deep breath. Then he started to run.
0: Welcome to Survival, a ParCast Original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco.
1: And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations, you can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter At Parcast Network,
1: and if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: This is our second episode on Glenn McDole, a U.S. Marine in World War II who escaped the Palawan massacre. Last week, we talked about how McDole joined the Marines, was taken prisoner in the Philippines in 1942 and spent over two years at a prison camp on the island of Palawan.
1: This week, we'll hear about how McDole escaped and how the United States military reacted to the horrible experiences that he and the other prisoners lived through.
0: The jagged coral sliced into McDole's bare feet As he sprinted, he saw the bodies of his fallen friends, washed in with the morning tide. He couldn't stop to pay his respects. He had to keep moving.
1: McDowell looked back and realized his bleeding leg was leaving a trail of fresh blood in the sand that could easily be followed. He had to get off the beach, so he jumped over some rocks and dove into the water. When he surfaced... He found himself right next to a cave-like hole in one of the massive coral rocks that lined the shore. It was filled with skittering crabs, but that didn't bother McDole as he pulled himself inside.
0: Hidden from the beach and the guards, McDole allowed himself to breathe. The gravity of the events of the past day set in. The death and destruction he had witnessed. The friends he had watched die horribly.
1: He also had to assume that his best friend Rufus Smith, or Smitty as he was known, had perished in the aftermath of the escape. For all McDole knew, he was the only survivor of the entire ordeal.
0: He stayed in the cave another day, waiting for the courage and strength to attempt the long swim across the bay.
1: As he sat there, he was startled to see a figure wading out in front of the cave, It was another prisoner, a West Virginian named Dane Hamrick.
0: McDole whispered for Hamrick to join him in his hiding spot. Hamrick heard him and crawled into the cave. As he did, McDole saw that Hamrick's arm was badly mangled from a gunshot wound. Even worse, gangrene had begun to spread.
1: According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, Gangrene should be treated immediately, usually with antibiotics and surgery to cut out the infection. In the cave, however, there were no tools for surgery and no medicine. The only treatment McDole could attempt was to wash out the wound with salt water. But the reality was that Hamrick wouldn't survive another day without actual medical attention.
0: Hamrick told McDole everything he had seen of the other prisoners and the location of the guards. He hadn't seen Smitty. They had to make it across the bay, and they had to move soon or else they'd risk being discovered. Hamrick was too weak to swim on his own, so McDowell would have to help him.
1: As the two of them mustered their courage, they heard the sound of an air raid, American planes dropping bombs elsewhere on the island. McDole and Hamrick listened to the explosions through the night their hearts breaking at the irony of the timing. If the raid had happened just a day earlier, it might have prevented the massacre.
0: The next morning, McDole wrapped Hamrick's arm around his neck and waded into the bay. As the water reached their necks and McDole started to swim, Hamrick began to shake.
1: McDole struggled to keep them moving, but Hamrick, delirious from the pain, began dragging them down, muttering to McDole that he just couldn't do it. Hamrick told McDole to take him back. McDole tried to press on, swimming further out into the bay.
0: Hamrick continued shaking and seizing in the water, trying to pull both of them back to the cave. McDole tried to fight it, but given the ordeal he had just been through, he just didn't have the strength. He had no choice but to reluctantly return to the cave with Hamrick.
1: He turned them around and began swimming back the way they came. They were only a few yards away, but Hamrick's shaking threatened to take them both down. McDole wrestled with him, but the two of them slipped beneath the surface.
0: McDole used the rest of his strength to push them back up to the top. Then he reared back and hit Hamrick as hard as he could, knocking him unconscious. McDole pulled the limp soldier back to the cave.
1: That was Hamrick's last chance, and they both knew it. When he woke up, Hamrick urged McDole to leave him and swim to safety. Instead, McDole continued the hopeless task of trying to treat Hamrick's wounds and rapidly growing infection. At the very least, he would keep his fellow soldier company in his final hours.
0: McDole cradled Hamrick in his arms, telling him to hold on and keep breathing. Eventually, Hamrick lost consciousness and quietly passed away. McDole cried over his body, the emotions of the day sinking in.
1: He buried Hamrick in the rocks, covering his body with leaves and hoping the crabs
0: would leave him alone. That night, just after sundown, McDole pushed himself back into the bay to begin his swim across the channel. He hoped he could make it to the other side before the sun rose and exposed him to the Japanese soldiers.
1: Glenn McDole had survived the burning of the shelters, the Japanese machine guns, and the jump from the cliffside. He had survived beatings, stabbings, emergency surgeries without anesthetic, and malaria.
0: Now, as he made his way across the moonlit channel, he had no idea of whether he was swimming toward rescue or to his death.
1: Up next, McDole makes the long swim across the bay. Now back to the story.
0: On December 14, 1944, Japanese soldiers at Palawan Prison Camp slaughtered almost 150 American prisoners of war. 23-year-old U.S. Marine Glenn McDole managed to survive the initial massacre, fleeing the prison and taking shelter in a small cave on the beach. But he was still trapped on the island. If he was truly going to escape, he would have to brave the treacherous swim across the bay.
1: When swimming long distances, mariner Bikram Singh recommends swimming in short bursts and then resting, using the body's natural buoyancy to float while keeping the head and neck above water to prevent hypothermia.
0: McDole did just that. He swam as far as his overtaxed arms and wounded legs would allow, then rested by floating on his back in the water. He stared up at the stars in the sky, his mind exhausted and blank.
1: He focused on the Southern Cross constellation, knowing that if he swam toward it, he would reach the Iwahig prison colony five miles across the bay. The prison, which the Japanese let the Filipinos continue to run, had become a central base of operations for the local resistance fighters.
0: There, he hoped to find friendly Filipinos who might take him in, or at least not turn him in. The best case scenario would be to find the underground guerrilla resistance and see if they could get him back to the Marines.
1: It was five miles from the beach to the Owahig prison colony on the other side of the bay. McDowell swam through the night, fighting through the pain from his wounded leg and increasingly numb arms. By the time he reached dry land, He was so physically and mentally depleted that he couldn't even make it to a hiding spot beyond the tree line. He collapsed and fell asleep in the sand.
0: When he woke up, he found a coconut that had washed ashore next to him. Starving and parched, McDole just barely found the strength to break it open and drink its milk.
1: Then he began to panic. He realized he'd be a sitting duck if any Japanese soldiers happened to be nearby. So he got to his feet and scrambled into the jungle.
0: McDole ran like a madman, fighting through the thick foliage to put as much distance as he could between himself and the Japanese soldiers he was convinced were right behind him.
1: After a few minutes, his panic subsided. There was no imminent danger, and he could take a moment to calm down. He sat in a small clearing in the jungle and prayed.
0: He realized that heading deeper into the seemingly endless jungle would only get him lost. He'd have to return the way he came and continue moving down the coast.
1: Retracing his steps, McDowell returned to the beach. He took stock of his surroundings and realized that he had missed his target. He could tell from his memories of the coastline that he was still miles away from Iwahig. However, across an inlet, he could see a small village. McDole didn't know if he had enough energy for another swim, but he couldn't think of another option. So, running on fumes, he threw himself back into the water.
0: It wasn't long before his body began to give out again. His aching limbs refused to swim any further, and McDole found himself unable to even stay afloat. His face slipped beneath the surface. He was drowning.
1: Once again, he prayed for something, anything, to save him.
0: Miraculously, his hand struck something solid and he grabbed on. With the last of his strength, McDole pulled himself up onto the object. It was a Filipino fish trap, a large bamboo net held together by sturdy wooden poles. It was just sturdy enough to keep his mouth above water, allowing him to breathe as he rested. Safe from the immediate danger of drowning, his body shut down and he passed out.
1: Morning came and McDowell was awakened by the sound of approaching boats. For a disoriented moment, he had no idea where he was. But as his surroundings came into focus, he realized that it must be the fishermen coming to check their traps.
0: Fearing that the fishermen might turn him over to the Japanese, McDole decided to stay hidden for the time being. He floated in the water behind the cage, his body just beneath the surface.
1: He watched as the fishermen pulled something out of the water and was shocked to see that it was another American POW, wounded but still alive. McDole felt both a surge of relief at knowing he wasn't the only survivor, but also a pang of fear as he watched the fishermen bring the American back to shore.
0: As frightened as he was of being recaptured, McDole realized that he had no strength left to swim or run. He would just have to hope that the fishermen wouldn't turn him in. He lifted one arm from the water and caught their attention.
1: The two fishermen paddled over and pulled him out of the water. Both were smiling. They asked him if he was a POW. McDole replied, I was, but no longer.
0: They brought a limp McDole back to shore, laid him down inside a grass hut and cleaned his wounds. One of the fishermen offered him a breakfast of fresh fish and bread. It was the best food McDowell had tasted in his entire life.
1: McDole was reunited with the other surviving POW, Doug Bogue from California. They recognized each other from their time in the camp. The two of them were happy to see each other, but the tragedy of what they had experienced and the uncertainty of their future kept them from truly celebrating.
0: A doctor arrived from the Iwahig penal colony to treat Bogue's wounded feet, which were badly cut up from running on coral. As McDole helped scrape maggots out of the wounds on Bogue's feet, he asked him if he knew about any other escaped prisoners.
1: Specifically, McDole asked if he had seen Smitty. As unlikely as it seemed, he still held out hope that his friend was alive. But like McDole, Bogue couldn't account for anyone other than himself once they started the swim.
0: Over the next day and night, the villagers fed McDole and treated his wounds, and he tried not to think about the possibility that they were simply waiting for the Japanese to arrive and take him back to Palawan. But that was out of his hands. He had no strength left to run. At the very least, he was briefly comfortable in the village, Despite his fears, it was the best night's sleep he had had in years.
1: But the next morning, he woke up to see one of his greatest enemies standing in the hut.
0: Pedro Pahier was the assistant director of the Owaheg prison colony, a diminutive Filipino man who would infuriate the American POWs by traveling to Palawan nearly every day, giving gifts to the Japanese guards and drinking sake with them long into the night.
1: Pahye seemed to delight in the misery of the prisoners. His friendship with the Japanese made him a turncoat and traitor to the Americans and Filipinos.
0: Now, after all McDole had gone through, the fire, the night in the garbage pit, the swim, he saw this traitor standing at the entrance to the hut and his life flashed before his eyes there was no doubt that Pahie was going to send McDole back to his Japanese friends to be executed.
1: He bitterly asked Pahie when the Japanese were coming. Pahie simply laughed. He wouldn't turn McDole over to the Japanese because he didn't work for them. He worked for the Americans.
0: Iwahig penal colony, Pahie revealed, was the center of an underground guerrilla resistance Pahier himself reported directly to the Americans and played the part of a traitor to deflect suspicion. And now his job was to get the two Americans to safety.
1: It wasn't going to be easy. Pahier knew the Japanese were aware that some escaped prisoners had made it to the villages on the other side of the bay. They needed to go immediately.
0: Pahier introduced McDole and Bogue to three scouts who would lead them to safety. He warned them to be quiet. They would be traveling very close to Japanese outposts, and if they were overheard speaking English, it would all be over.
1: The scouts loaded McDole and Bogue onto water buffaloes and led them out of the village in the dead of night. The group moved slowly and quietly through enemy territory, sometimes coming within a few hundred yards of Japanese soldiers. McDole and Bogue remained silent and pressed themselves down against the animals, trying to draw as little attention as possible. They were successful.
0: It was Christmas Eve when McDole finally passed over a hill out of the Japanese patrolled territory into the area controlled by the Filipino guerrillas. To celebrate the moment, the scouts began to sing, God Bless America. McDole and Bogue were left speechless.
1: McDole had spent the last 11 days in varying states of panic and terror. Now, as he looked out toward the gorilla-held Brooks Point at the southern end of the island, he felt a few tears slip down his cheeks. He was free.
0: In the village, McDole learned that several other survivors had been picked up by the gorillas and taken to Brooks Point. One of them was Rufus Smith. The fact that McDole and Smitty were both among the 11 out of the 150 men to survive the massacre felt like a Christmas miracle.
1: The next day, McDole and the other survivors waited at Brooks Point, where American planes would land to rescue them. Unfortunately, they were not top military priority. It would be a long wait before the Americans arrived.
0: While they waited in the village, the survivors received one final scare. Each of the men was suffering from malaria, which meant six to 10 hour bouts of shaking, sweating, and fever. With enough care from the locals, however, McDowell and the two other survivors recovered after only a couple of days.
1: A little over three weeks later, Rescue finally came. An American seaplane emerged from the clouds one morning and landed in the water off Brooks Point.
0: McDole and the two other survivors boarded the plane and were met with handshakes from the soldiers on board. They had made it.
1: As the plane took off, McDole helped himself to a bottle of soda and a candy bar. It was the best candy he had ever tasted.
0: He looked down through the window as the plane rose into the sky and watched as Palawan Island, his prison for the past two and a half years, receded into the distance and disappeared.
1: McDowell thought about things he had seen on that island, the ways he had nearly died, and the friends who were killed there. He was grateful to be leaving.
0: McDole and the other survivors were brought to the American military base on the island of Leyte, where they were taken onto a hospital ship for further treatment. Then they were brought to Pearl Harbor, where they were debriefed and interrogated about everything they had experienced.
1: The emaciated survivors looked like they had been to hell and back, and that was essentially the case.
0: McDole was anxious to return to Urbandale, Iowa, He couldn't wait to see his family again, his mother Dessa, his father David, and his five siblings. However, his duty to the American military was not over.
1: He was headed back to the United States, but not home. They were going to Washington, DC. Put on a plane the very next morning, The survivors were told not to breathe a word of their experiences to anyone before the military could fully investigate. They feared it would hurt morale if anyone knew what horrible things were happening in the Pacific.
0: During a stop off in Hawaii, a Motormouth Army Major boarded and took a seat next to McDole. From Hawaii to San Diego, the Major chatted them up, asking about their time in the Pacific and whether they'd heard about any escaped POWs on the plane. McDole and the two other survivors, following their strict orders, said nothing.
1: When they landed in San Diego, the Major smiled at McDole and said, I guess I can trust you.
0: Once in Washington, D.C., they were thoroughly interviewed and debriefed by the U.S. Military War Crimes Branch, McDole relived every wound, illness, and near-death moment. It was a torturous task, but he gritted his teeth and did his duty.
1: After a week, the three survivors were allowed to leave Washington. McDole said his goodbyes and boarded a train bound for Iowa. It had been a long and difficult journey to say the least, but he was finally on his last leg. He was headed home.
0: He arrived in Urbandale on February 6, 1945, coincidentally, his 24th birthday. It had been just under three years since he was taken prisoner and nearly four years since he left Iowa.
1: His mother and siblings were waiting for him at the train station when he arrived home. McDole embraced them with tears in his eyes. As he hugged his siblings, Joe, Colleen, Max, Dolores, and Margaret, He realized that his father was not there.
0: His mother softly told him that his father, David, had died on December 14th, 1943, exactly one year before the Palawan massacre.
1: McDole was heartbroken. He thought back to the last time he had seen his father, the night before he left for basic training. Though David McDole was a deeply patriotic man who always believed in serving his country, he was still saddened to see his son join the Marines and leave home. Glenn comforted himself by knowing that his father would be proud of what he managed to persevere through.
0: In March, the army authorized McDole to reveal his experiences. Several army majors and a group of reporters met him in Urbandale and he told his story to the public.
1: The war ended five months later with the Japanese surrender on August 14, 1945. For the first time in years, McDowell had the luxury of making plans for a future that didn't involve being a prisoner.
0: A year after the war ended, in August 1946, McDowell got married to Betty Moody, whom he'd met through a fellow Palawan survivor. And a year after that, in August 1947, he finally accomplished what he set out to do long ago. He joined the Iowa Highway Patrol.
1: Not long after McDole completed his Highway Patrol training, the U.S. military once again came calling. They needed McDole to go to Japan to help the prosecution in the war crime trials against Japanese officers. They would need him to look his tormentors in the eye and identify each one who had beaten and murdered his friends.
0: McDole immediately agreed, though he knew that testifying would be no easy task. As difficult as it would be, he was ready to face his enemies once again.
1: Next, McDole tries to bring his tormentors to justice. Now back to the story.
0: It was 1947. Just over two years had passed since Japanese soldiers brutally executed almost 150 American prisoners of war in the Palawan Massacre. Now 26 years old, U.S. Marine Corporal Glenn McDole was called back to Japan to help bring those responsible to justice.
1: After arriving in Japan, McDole was greeted by military prosecutors in Tokyo and put to work identifying the guards and officers from the Palawan prison camp. In the aftermath of the surrender, many had attempted to adopt new names and identities to avoid punishment for their crimes.
0: McDole was brought to a prison outside Tokyo and asked to point out the men who had tormented him for years, with every familiar face Horrible memories came flooding back.
1: One of those familiar faces was Taichi Deguchi, the most vicious of all the officers on Palawan. McDowell's blood ran cold as he watched the interrogation through a pane of glass. Deguchi entered the room and, with a sneer on his face, denied every single accusation against him. He denied beating prisoners, He denied torturing those who attempted to escape. He denied starving prisoners as punishment for infractions. He denied executing prisoners on a whim.
0: To McDole, each lie felt like a stab into an old wound. Every instinct in his body told him to attack Daguchi, to kill him right then and there. But he held back. He had a job to do, and that job was to seek justice not revenge.
1: The friendly guard known as Smiley was also interrogated. Smiley seemed genuinely happy to see that McDole survived. However, he also denied that any war crimes were committed on Palawan. Smiley may have been the kindest of the guards and innocent of committing those crimes, but he was still a Japanese soldier and loyal to his comrades.
0: McDole spoke to Smiley privately and urged him to tell the truth. If he didn't cooperate, he would be held just as accountable for the crimes that others committed. But if he told the truth, he could at least clear his own name.
1: This got through to him. Smiley returned to the interrogation room and gave them everything they needed. Names, dates, orders.
0: As McDole watched Smiley name names, He felt a bizarre surge of guilt. He found himself thinking back to those long hours spent working in the hot jungle, and how Smiley was the only guard who seemed to care about the prisoners. He thought about the bananas and coconuts Smiley would sneak them, and how he would tell them to take breaks so they didn't wear themselves out. Smiley showed them kindness, and McDole began to feel that he should do the same.
1: McDole spoke to the military prosecutors and urged them to release Smiley. They agreed. Smiley burst into tears when he learned he was allowed to go home to his wife and children. He embraced McDole and thanked him profusely. The American had potentially saved his life.
0: On his breaks amid the interrogations, McDole took walks around Tokyo exploring the country that he had spent four years of his life fighting. The fact that it was now peacetime felt uncanny and strange. He had to remind himself that he wasn't surrounded by the enemy anymore. Then, once the interrogations and depositions were completed, McDole boarded a plane bound for Iowa. He was done thinking about the horrors of the past. Now it was time to move on.
1: The investigation McDowell participated in was part of a widespread effort to achieve justice for the atrocities of the war. This was no simple task. The Allied countries had created a system of international courts to prosecute war criminals, but the law was murky at best. Unlike the belligerent nations in Europe, Japan had never ratified the Geneva Convention treaties, which outlined international law for the treatment of prisoners of war. They couldn't be prosecuted for violating a treaty they had never agreed to. In fact, most of the officers on the ground weren't even aware of any laws regarding POWs.
0: General MacArthur, placed in charge of rebuilding post-war Japan, created three classes of war crimes. Class A, crimes against peace, Class B, conventional war crimes, and Class C, crimes against humanity. Charges of crimes against peace were leveled against Japanese ministers and generals, those who were viewed as responsible for starting the war. The rest of those accused, like the officers stationed at Palawan, were charged with Class B and C crimes.
1: Nearly 6,000 Japanese soldiers and officers were put on trial across Asia, with 4,000 total convictions. 33 officers from Palawan Island were accused of war crimes, and with McDole's help, 16 were put on trial. Only 10 were convicted.
0: One of the men who was convicted was Taichi Daguchi. In November 1948, Deguchi was found guilty of violating the laws and customs of war. He was initially sentenced to death, but General MacArthur commuted his sentence to 30 years in prison.
1: The war crimes committed by Japanese soldiers and officers in World War II, and the correct way to legally address them, remain a controversial topic to this day. In the 1950s, in a push to strengthen ties between the US and Japan as the Cold War intensified, all imprisoned Japanese war criminals were given amnesty. In
0: 1958, Tai Chi Deguchi walked out of Sugamo prison, a free man.
1: By that point, Deguchi's war crimes had begun to feel like a distant memory for Glenn McDole. By the 1960s, McDole was a lieutenant in the Highway Patrol, running an office in Storm Lake, Iowa. He and his wife Betty had two daughters, Glenda and Kathy. While McDole patrolled the highway, Betty worked as a parking enforcement officer.
0: McDole retired from the Iowa Patrol in 1976 after 29 years of service. After a year off, he then spent 12 years in the local sheriff's department before retiring for good in 1989. He never returned to the Philippines. In fact, he never again left North America after his visit to Japan in 1947.
1: McDowell considered himself lucky that he not only survived the war, but was able to return home and live a relatively normal life. His experiences in the Philippines did not break him.
0: His friend Smitty survived the rest of the war too and returned home to his family in Texas. Doug Bogue, McDowell's companion from Brooks Point, went back to California, got married, and had three children.
1: Other survivors were not as fortunate. Many suffered lifelong physical and psychological trauma. Some spent years in mental hospitals, and some refused to ever talk about their experiences.
0: McDole devoted himself to telling the story of his experiences both as a way of processing his trauma and to keep the memories of the fallen alive. Over the years, he traveled all over the country giving speaking engagements and interviews.
1: Speaking about his experiences was a survival mechanism, a productive way to deal with the horrors he faced. But some scars from the experience would always remain. Even in his later years, he was haunted by flashbacks to Palawan. He would sometimes wake his wife up by screaming in his sleep, cursing at the Japanese officers. His wife would calm him down and remind him that he was at home and he was safe. Palawan was a lifetime ago.
0: Glenn McDole passed away on September 3, 2009 in Des Moines, Iowa at the age of 88. He was survived by his two daughters, three granddaughters, and six great-grandchildren. 10 years after his death in 2019, McDole was posthumously awarded 13 medals, including a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. The medals were presented to his daughters, Kathy and Glenda.
1: There were over 100,000 American deaths in the Pacific in World War II. The Marine Corps alone lost nearly 25,000 troops. It was the deadliest theater of the deadliest war in history, and Glenn McDowell managed to survive through a combination of quick decision-making, resilience, and luck. For the rest of his life, McDowell never lost sight of just how fortunate he was to make it back home.
0: Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information on McDole and the Palawan Massacre, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Last Man Out, Glenn McDole, U.S. Marine Corps, Survivor of the Palawan Massacre in World War II by Bob Willibanks, extremely helpful in our research.
1: You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
0: Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Survival, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Ryan Lee and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.